Hey, it's Justin, and I have a big announcement and personal invitation for you. This May, we're inviting a small group of people to Austin to learn how to grow their wealth tax-free and get access to some of my personal friends and experts in the industry. We did something similar last year, and the feedback was incredible, so we set aside a few tickets for non-Mastermind members to join us for this event. You'll spend some time learning from Garrett Gunderson, the brilliant and hilarious mind behind Money Unmasked, and the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling book, Killing Sacred Cows, and one of my favorite books, What Would the Rockefellers Do? He's going to share his insights on how to grow your assets tax-free with life insurance. And you'll also get some time with Rob Dial, the mastermind behind the Mindset Mentor Podcast, who will share with you how to find fulfillment in success. Then you'll get to participate in a special investment presentation, in-depth discussions, and breakout sessions on two crucial yet often overlooked topics, personalized tax strategies and wealth building. Plus, when you register, you'll have the opportunity to attend a one-day course the day before on vetting deals. If you want to learn our process so that you can make great decisions, there's no better teacher than Hans Box. This is our most requested topic, and it'll be an exceptional course. Seats for the course and the one-day event are limited, so if you're interested, please grab your ticket today. I always say you're just one connection, one decision, and one strategy away from true freedom, and I look forward to helping you on your journey. Head over to lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash live or click the link around this video and secure your ticket now before we sell out. Hope to see you in Austin this May. Once again, that's lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash live. I can't wait to see you there. Now, let's get into today's episode. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a special offer that I created for the Lifestyle Investor community. When I look back at my investing journey, there's one specific investment in particular that was the spark to increasing my net worth and allowing me to leave my job to become a lifestyle investor. I'm talking about mobile home parks. Yes, mobile home parks. If you just cringed a little, that's exactly why these provide such a great opportunity because of the negative stigma and stereotype people might have. In reality, this is an incredible investment that you can get into with little or no money down. You can also quickly get a return on your capital. You can immediately cash flow on day one. You can hold it forever as a cash cow. You get accelerated depreciation to reduce or eliminate the taxes that you would owe. And often, the seller will finance the deal so you don't need a bank. You can also buy them at the highest cap rate of all real estate, meaning it's the cheapest real estate to buy based on the income that it generates. And it's the lowest default rate of all real estate, meaning it's the safest asset class to own in real estate. I used this asset class to start my journey in real estate investing and grow my net worth to over eight figures all before I turned 40. And out of all the questions that people ask me, how do I get into mobile home parks is still the number one question that I get, which is why I put together this mobile home park masterclass. This is a paid class that I'm offering for a limited time only. For all the details, head over to justindonald.com forward slash M-H-P, and watch the video, which outlines all the details about the class and exactly what you get when you sign up. You'll also hear the incredible success stories from students who have gone through my content and are now making hundreds of thousands of dollars in passive income. 
If you want to take the same first step that I did that helped me take both my wife and I from working full-time jobs to becoming lifestyle investors, join me in my Mobile Home Park Masterclass and let's get started on your journey to becoming a lifestyle investor. Visit justindonald.com forward slash MHP for all the details. Welcome to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. Imagine being able to earn passive income, build long-term wealth, while gaining total freedom from your business or job. That's what lifestyle investing is all about. I'm your host, Justin Donald, and in less than two years, my investments drove enough passive income for both my wife and me to quit our jobs. And now, I want to show you how to do the same. I want to teach you how to create wealth without creating a job. You'll learn the exact same investment strategies I used to multiply my net worth to over eight figures all before the age of 40. If you want to learn all about low-risk cash flow investing, achieve financial freedom, and live the life you truly desire, this podcast is going to show you exactly how to do it. Today, I'm speaking with the powerhouse brother duo, Chris and Rob Taylor. Here's a bit of context. Chris founded a company called Square Root in 2006, which helps automotive OEM field managers understand and act on unique data patterns and opportunities for retailers in their markets. The company was acquired by CDK Global, where Chris continues his journey as vice president and general manager. His brother, Rob Taylor, is co-founder of Austin-based Convey, which was acquired for $255 million by Project 44. Convey powers direct-to-consumer delivery experiences for more than 2,000 of the world's largest brands. What's interesting is that Chris and Rob took very different startup paths, but got to very similar destinations. Chris bootstrapped and scaled a single startup over the course of 17 years and didn't take a single dollar of outside money. Rob, on the other hand, leveraged venture capital to fund seven different startups over a 20-year period. It's a go-big, go-fast strategy. Both of these paths have pros and cons that we take a deep dive on during today's conversation. These guys have had major exits and major successes, and I wanted to talk to them both about their experience building, scaling, and selling businesses. We discuss entrepreneurship, acquisition deals, IPOs, bootstrapping versus raising money, VC partnerships, and so much more. To get access to the full show notes and the links to all the resources mentioned, visit justindonald.com forward slash 77. Thanks for listening. And without further delay, my conversation with Chris and Rob Taylor. Well, I'm so excited to be here with two of my friends. We've got Chris Taylor and Rob Taylor. And I'm excited because this is the very first time I have ever interviewed two people at the same time. But their story is just so compelling and so fun. And and you guys, I'm just so glad you could join. Thanks for uh, coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having us. Glad to be here. Excited. Yeah. So this is great. You guys have this interesting story, this 
It's almost like this rivalry in a way of like, hey, what is the best strategy to be an entrepreneur, to raise money, to grow and scale a business? You guys are both successful entrepreneurs. You've both had successful exits. I'm really excited to discuss those in more detail. But before we do, I kind of want to learn the story behind this story because you guys weren't always these uh, tech and entrepreneurial mavericks that you are today. You grew up in West Virginia. Somehow you made it to Austin. I'd love to hear more of your story. Yeah, thanks, Justin. Yeah, no, I wouldn't say it's a uh, traditional entrepreneur path to start off in rural West Virginia. Uh, Rob and I grew up about a half an hour outside of Charleston. So Charleston's the capital, a couple hundred thousand people tops, but it gets rural really fast. So we basically grew up backing up to, I don't know, a couple tens of thousands of acres of woods. And that's kind of how our childhood was running around the woods growing up. So, uh, but yeah, I think, but I think we were, uh, I know typical first, first child, second child, Rob was, was very organized go-getter. I guess we were both go-getters, but, uh, uh, yeah, very, uh, very kind of typical, interesting rivalry right from the very beginning. That's cool. As you can tell, Chris is the extrovert in the room for sure. I'm more of an introvert, but growing up in West Virginia, you know, it was sort of pretty evident to me that Chris was going to be an entrepreneur. I mean, we lived next to the woods and Chris used to go in the woods and he had a turtle farm. So he would collect turtles and he would put the name, he would write in red ink, the names of the turtles, put them in a, in, a, in like a, a bin. And then he would charge the neighborhood kids to come over and hang out and pet the turtles. So I knew at a very young age, Chris was going to be an entrepreneur. I took a much more traditional traditional path, which we can talk about. Yeah, I, mean, I think Rob was more the finance whiz. Uh, as a, yeah, so Rob's four years older than I was. So I was always the younger and shorter brother living in his shadow. And I remember distinctly at an early age, Rob had convinced me that nickels were better than dimes because they were bigger. And so there was a there was a good solid year of my life where Rob, like I was making money off of the local kids uh, off my turtle farm. And then Rob was tricking me into giving a lot of it to him through, through various ways. Ways he, he took advantage of his little brother. So I think we had we had a, a pretty strong uh, sibling rivalry you know, for, for the very beginning. Yeah, very crafty, Rob. <laughs> you got to find your path, I guess. But yes, very very different. And so growing up in West Virginia, we both uh, went to college, and then I think you know that's kind of where our our paths diverged. I took a very traditional path, went to college, engineering degree, went into large company as a manufacturing engineer for five years, went back to graduate school to get my uh, MBA and an engineering uh, graduate degree, and then went into management consulting for a few years. So very, very traditional. And it was not until 1999, so I'm aging myself now, where my entrepreneurial career really took off. And, and I've been you know, building, building companies uh, for the last 25 years uh, across seven startups. And there's a fair mix of sputters, fails, uh, and wild successes as well. And you hope along the way that you learn something and, and apply it to the next one. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And I, uh, I, I went to school and I actually studied computer science. I was kind of tech was kind of my, my, my thing, although Rob very quickly 
caught up in 1999. Uh, so I went to school for computer science and math and psychology and, uh, at Carnegie Mellon. Then I moved down to Austin to work for uh, then a budding startup called Trilogy, which is you know both uh, notorious and uh, might be the right word here, here in Austin, and spent 10 years at Trilogy. So, but in 1999, and you know to, to go way back, that was basically the tech boom, right? That was the dot com boom was, was happening in 99, and so I Trilogy at the time had spun out a bunch of, of dot-coms to you know, try to take advantage of the market. And I was on the leadership team of a couple of those. And uh, in particular, I was working on one called Carter that went from 30 to 300 to one. Uh, I was the last employee over a period of nine months. So yeah, I joined it in 99. And by the time you hit May, the dot-com bubble had, uh, had burst. And Rob, you took, maybe talk about what you were doing with KFOS at that time. Yeah, my first startup in 99, similar trajectory where we put some vent Venture capital money into the business. We five months later did a public offering, took the company public, and, and we were in no way ready to be a public company. And so uh, we spent a lot of money really quickly to grow the business. And then, you know, as, as Chris mentioned, dot com bubble uh, hit sort of in 2000. We downsized the business, but it was just this amazing experience of getting an entire business life cycle over the course of, for me, it was about four, three or four years. And then I had the buck. Then it was, there was no going back to big companies. It was really about building companies at early stages, having that autonomy, being able to make impactful decisions every single day that directed the business. So yeah, I was hooked from that point forward. Yeah, that's just incredible, guys, because whether the IPO goes well or not, that is like a foundation of education that is going to be so relevant, so applicable. It's going to help in the next acquisition IPO, whatever you end up doing, because it steers the ship. It's like, even if everything went poorly, which I know it didn't, there's so much to be learned in that process for round three, round four, and wherever it goes. I just think that that's so awesome. Yeah, and so Rob was in Phoenix at that time, and I and I had I was in Austin. And favorite article ever published. I need to, I can't find a copy of this, but Rob's company was public, and the little star shows up, and I followed this. I was looking at the latest news, and there was an article, and this was probably March or April of of two thousand. And in the article, I, there was a line that said, "Companies like Kpasa.com and Carter.com are having massive layoffs," and those were our two companies. So our two companies were mentioned in the same article about a trend piece about how dot-com bubble was was collapsing. So we clipped that to our, sent it to our mom and told her maybe she shouldn't uh, retire just yet. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I can imagine how proud she was. Yeah. That's awesome. And so how did you guys kind of get back here to Austin at the same time? And by the way, for those of you that are listening and you can't see this gorgeous background that these guys have, they're at Chris's place. And by the way, Chris, your home is absolutely one of my favorite homes in Austin. It's one of my favorite homes of, of any of my friends. And you've got this secret hidden door. It's a trap door in a wall where you wouldn't even know that you, that you could slip through into this winding staircase down into what you guys call the bunker. And you have just the coolest man cave and bar and wine room and old school, a record player set up. I mean, it is such a cool place to hang out and just talk about life and have fun together. Yeah, well, we love to host it. We yeah, we we kind of built this house to to host and have fun and be extroverts, as Rob mentioned. So yeah, we'd love to we'd love to have you and your crew over here any anytime. So yeah, bring the mastermind, bring your friends, uh, bring your listeners. We love to love the host. 
Oh, that sounds awesome. I will take you up on that. That sounds great. So what got you both here? And, and when was it that you got here to Austin? Yes, yeah, so I'll get that. So I moved here in 95 after I graduated school and I uh, spent 10 years at Trilogy, you know, doing tech, doing sales, then running their, their dot coms. And then so I left uh, Trilogy in 2006 and started my, so my, my journey is a little different. I've had one startup for uh, almost 17 years now. I just sold it actually our, our year anniversary. Uh, we just passed our year anniversary. So I had a very different path than Rob. Well, I had a lot of startups. I had one for, for 17 years. And so, so I had been running that. So when did you actually move here? It's like about six or seven years 2011. ago. 2011. 2011, yeah, no, what, 10 years ago. Yeah. So I had been running Square Root for five or six years uh, at that point when Rob came to town. So. Yeah, this is a this is an interesting segue to sort of the differences in how we approach entrepreneurship. You know, Chris just mentioned he has worked on one startup for 17 years. He bootstrapped that startup, didn't take a single dollar of outside money, and owned the whole company outside of what he carved out for his employees. My approach has been very different really since the beginning, which is raise money, leverage other people's money, in this case, venture capital and uh, use that capital to invest ahead of traction. And so it is, it is a go big, go fast strategy and really have deployed that you know, against the, the seven or so startups uh, over the past, over the past 20 some years. So I actually worked on a few startups, was living in Los Angeles at the time, working on a company called TrueCar, which is actually now a public company. And, uh, you know, TrueCar started to get a little bit large and I was ready to go build again. I just had my first child. Uh, LA was really never long term for us. And so really took that opportunity to be thoughtful about not only what was next from an from a entrepreneur standpoint, but geography. And, you know, Chris was already here. Austin is, was and is even more so now such an amazing place to raise your kids to build a company. There's lots of uh, experience, sort of early stage talent here, lots of capital here. And so I had the opportunity to come and, and start a business here and did that in 2011. That's awesome. I just love this whole idea of brothers who kind of have their own strengths, took their own path. You know, you both influence each other a bit, but at the end of the day, you say, no, I'm going with my instincts on this. I'm going with my experience, my circle of influence, what they're, you know, advising, what my gut's telling me. So it's totally different paths, but you end up in the same place with companies that are booming. You both have exits within, I mean, months of each other, which is really cool. And uh, at the end of the day, the results were were pretty similar. I mean, on paper, I think anytime. And by the way, I've had experience raising money for one of my businesses. So I've done the bootstrap route and I've done raising money. And it's amazing how quickly you lose equity as you raise money, but it's a bigger pie. You get a smaller piece of it, but the pie just gets a lot bigger. And I haven't done it to the level that you guys have, but I'm curious to hear more of the ins and outs of that and and kind of what that has looked like for you. There's this saying, would you rather own 1% of a $100 million company or 100% of a $10 million company? And that, I think, really uh, captures the spirit behind a venture capital-backed business where over time, when you raise money, you are diluted in your ownership 
but you are presumably building a company faster that is worth more money over time. And again, there's there's lots of ways those things go sideways, but that's the that's the math behind it versus Chris, who didn't take any outside capital, never diluted, owns most of the business. And so, yeah, I mean, this, that, that sort of captures the spirit of the difference. Yeah, and, and I, I think ironically, and trust me, we do this math. We, we, we do a bootstrap versus VC talk around town and people always ask who's winning, uh, right? And at any given time, it's always very hard to tell, but we both just exited our companies and Rob's was massively larger than ours, you know, measured in quarters of billions, let's just say. And uh, mine wasn't nearly as big. But if you look financially over his last couple of startups and my one startup and where we're sitting right now, it is literally almost exactly the same, right? Like plus or minus five to 10%. And so we ended up in this very, very similar place financially with very different paths and, you know, very different stresses, I didn't say, you know, kind of along the way uh, as we've done that. And it is a choice, right? It is a choice about, about you know, what is your idea and, and what is your path? Passion and you know, what are your skill sets and your ecosystem uh, to truly make that happen? And you know, we do a whole check on it. So. Yeah. And the reality is, it's not that one is right and one is wrong. It's which is best for you, which is best for your business, because there are pros and cons to both. And I just think it's incredible that you guys ended up you know, in such a, a close number that, that Delta is pretty small even though purchase price... And by the way, you guys both did incredibly well. And I love how modest you are, Chris, where... I mean, you're both very modest, but you're like, oh, you know, Rob did a lot better than me. You know, this was a a massive exit. You both had massive exits, but it is interesting to see what does that equity equal? And then when you write it down, you guys are very close. And I like that you can get there two different ways. It's not like, hey, you start a business, you need to go the VC route. Or you start a business, you need to bootstrap. Because both work and both are great. One's maybe a slower path and maybe there's a little more control. One's a faster path. You have a little bit more micromanagement in a lot of aspects, depending on the VC that you go with. But at the end of the day, each can be very successful. And I like that you have proven that out. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, you know, in the Austin ecosystem, those folks that have that option, right? Right. And not all businesses are made to have that option, but those folks that have that option almost inevitably end up talking to us, right? People, you know, say, hey, you should talk to the Taylor brothers because, you know, we have that perspective and we, you know, we do take a little bit of, you know, I'm too team bootstrap, he's team VC, and, and we have those conversations. And so it's a lot of fun. And we, we get a lot of energy from that, uh, helping entrepreneurs navigate those waters and, you know, really understand what those differences are. But you, you hit it right on the head, Justin, which it really is a personal choice about the kind of company you want to build and the kind of life and energy and speed and all of these things that you want to have. And and also how much risk you want to take. I mean, it's, you know, taking other people's money, it can be stressful, right? I mean, you have a board of directors uh, who are made up of your investors and you have to continually show progress and, and answer to those demands. And so there are pros and cons. And I think from a VC back standpoint, I think you know some of those some of those key benefits are speed. When you raise money, it allows you just to go faster in every way. You can use that money to go hire really, really accomplished, amazing people who are expensive. You can use that money to build your solution and your product ahead maybe of where the market demand is. And so it just gives you the ability to sort of move faster. I think along with that, speed can result in 
true disruption, right? Like if you have a an idea or a business concept that is truly innovative and disruptive, you need to take advantage of that market opportunity really quickly. And we just we just talked about speed. So if you want to take advantage quickly, really leaning in from an investment standpoint can be can be super important. Yeah, and then on the flip side of that, so yeah, completely losing on speed, right? I was always, you know, and we, we we talked about this in a couple of our talks. Like, I think the way to think of it is Rob was always doing top-down planning, right? He's like, hey, I've got, pick a number, $5, $10 million in the bank from the latest round. So we have a plan. We've got to present to the board, and we're going to go ahead. We're going to go spend all that money to this outcome. I was doing the exact opposite. I was like, I'm going to have a deal that may or may not close in a month. And when that closes, do I spend that dollar on sales? Do I spend it on operations? Do I on engineering? Rob's moving all the levers up, and I'm choosing which lever I'm going to go. So that kind of top versus bottom planning results in in, in speed. But on the flip side, it also results in control, right? So I had all the optionality and control that I could have ever wanted. I, I chose the exit ramp. Frankly, had I been VC funded and you know hit COVID and we hit some 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 stumbles on the business, I probably couldn't have sold because the the exit wouldn't have been big enough for the investors. They would have wanted to take more risk. Let's work through this and go. And maybe that works out and you get a much bigger outcome, or maybe it doesn't. And it goes to zero. And I got to the point where I took, I had a bunch of off ramps that probably wouldn't have been available to VC, including a cash flowing company, right? So I, I had years where I, I just cash flowed the company and built this lovely bunker and had money along the way and wasn't quite as all in as, as you might be, you know, in, in a VC world. Yeah, control control goes out the window the second uh, you raise somebody else's uh, using somebody else's money and and while and I, I mean absolute control I mean you, you have a board of directors that really govern the business and there are certain expectations and you have to align on the speed at which you're going to grow the company where you spend the money and so that optionality and that control really really is one of the downsides of of raising venture. Yeah. And another interesting component of this, I like the speed, I like the control type of dynamics here. I think that's really important. But I also think that having the end in mind as you kind of figure things out as an entrepreneur is important. You know, if you know that you want to have an exit in a shorter time frame, you're going to make different decisions with the profit of your company and how you reinvest that, how much money you raise or would like to raise what that whole marketing campaign might look like, which VCs you might go to versus if you just want to have a lifestyle business or if you want to build something slowly over time, you're not sure if you want to exit. You want to have a business that's maybe built for impact, whether it be your deliverables or the influence you can have building a team and employees. And the whole idea of like getting clear on what that looks like is also going to help steer the ship as to whether you should bootstrap or whether you should go VC and raise money. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And not all ideas are built for the other one, right? You know, people always ask me, why did you bootstrap? I'm like, the reality was, I didn't have a lot of choice, right? At the beginning, the idea wasn't fundable. And then we had enough traction, you know, kind of with some early products, you know, we're kind of consulting products that we turned into SaaS products down the line. But we had enough money coming in on a cash flow basis where why would I take a couple million bucks? I don't need it at this point. And then by the time I needed it again, the business had slowed down and it was like a horrible time to raise money. So, so it's a little bit of a when, when and if do you, do you have a choice? 
choice. Not all ideas are created equal. Not all timing is created equal. And that's some of the stuff that we talk to entrepreneurs is the timing right? Is the idea right? What type of traction should you have to decide when? And the other thing, it's a win, not if, right? I sold my company. I'm no longer, uh, I'm now part of a much larger company. I, I bootstrapped it a very long time, but a lot, all companies start off bootstrapped, right? When you're an idea in your garage, you know, think about what you want to do. Uh, that's your bootstrapping. You're working your way up and then eventually do turn on some source of capital at some point. Yeah, it's, it's a great point. I mean, this uh, notion that not all ideas are investable is really important, right? Venture, venture capitalists and those who take the risk early really are betting on a number of things. They're betting on the entrepreneur, of course, uh, first and foremost, but the idea has to be big enough. It has to have the potential to really, really be a big company. And so not all ideas really, really are investable. The other thing that's, I think, interesting there is once you raise money, once you go the venture route, you sort of can't go the other way. You can't then go back into sort of into bootstrap mode. I mean, there is a growth imperative that continues over time because you'll raise a, a round of funding and that funding is used to get you to the next round of funding. And in order to get to that next round of funding, you have to, to manage the growth in the right way and meet that imperative. And so you really are on this path of getting bigger and bigger and going faster and faster. Yeah, and that's an art in itself, Rob, where uh, a lot of people think, oh, you just raise as much money as you can. No, actually, you just raise as much money as you need to get to the next round. And that next round is a whole different animal. And it comes with its own unique set of pros and cons and circumstances that you have to work through, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this idea that you should raise as much money as possible is false. Absolutely. I think there really is a an informed equation around how much do you think you need to get to the next set of milestones that also make your company more valuable so that the next time you raise money, you can do so at an enhanced valuation and and have less dilution. The problem with raising as much money as you can at a really, really high inflated value is then you've created a hurdle for yourself that can oftentimes be impossible to overcome if you, if you have any hiccups in the business. So I coach entrepreneurs on, on this issue all the time. It's very, very important. You have to really be thoughtful about how much money you raise and the valuation at which you raise it. Yeah. And Chris, you had talked about timing. It's interesting though, because in the world of timing, you're not just timing what's going on in your company you're also timing what's going on in the economy. Like there are two and and, and other sets of timing that you've got to balance because your business may be flush, but the economy's not right. I mean, recently, you know, during the beginning of the pandemic, there was a big freeze and hold on, on VCs investing money in companies. And so your business could be booming, but you might not be able to get money. At other points in time, maybe you just had one crazy month that was horrible, messed up your P&L, but that one thing is going to totally cripple your ability to earn money with some VCs if you were to raise, if you had the ability to raise. And that brings me to another point, which is the partnership with the VC really matters and picking the right VC. We had just this unbelievable... We had an unbelievably bad experience with a VC and an unbelievably great experience with a VC and it was interesting. So for the company IFM Restoration that uh, I started with a couple of friends, 
this company has done very well. And in our first, you know, I want to be careful not to use any names, but the, the first VC group that we worked with, basically on the day that they were supposed to wire money, tried to retrade at like half the amount. They literally came in knowing that we needed funding and we needed it ASAP. And they tried to lowball us at like half of what was literally signed in the term sheet. Totally Bush League. And we had another VC, S3 Ventures here out of Austin, the largest VC in Texas, who we just had this incredible experience with. And by the way, it's really funny because the, the VC that tried to retrade with us massively retrade. That's not like a little negotiation. Like that's egregious. And so we walked and they didn't realize that, you know, we had good relationships and had other abilities to to get financing in place. And they're like, no one's ever walked on us. You know, and we're like, well, here's a first. You don't treat people like that. And they're like, no, no, just give us a counter us, you know, give us a number. And we're like, no, we're out. And uh, they said, no one's ever done this. We're like, well, all right, now they have. And so we went with S3 Ventures and they've just been a delight to work with and uh, really awesome partners. And I just have so many positive things to say about them. And even when they knew we might go with someone else, they were still adding value and saying, hey, let us connect you to this partner, these people. And so that relationship matters so much, in my opinion. I guess you'd feel the same way, Rob. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you really want to be in a position to pick your firm and even more specifically to pick the partner and have chemistry with the partner at that firm that's going to be on your board of directors. It really, really is important. And I, you know, I've been in venture now for 20 plus years and have really observed a change in that space. I think we've really been in a 10 year plus stretch now where the entrepreneur really has the leverage relative to the prior 10 years. When it was you know, 20 years ago, incredibly expensive to build a company. We didn't have all the cloud-based architectures today. And so really expensive to get a company off the ground. Venture capitalists had a lot of leverage. And I think that resulted in a lot of bad, uh, bad behavior. But I've really seen a shift over the last 10 years where when the entrepreneur has the leverage, and the venture community is competing, it really does lead to some innovation and changing behaviors there. And I, I've been really fortunate. I've, I've worked with uh, my current company, Convey, and my last company before that, Black Locus, both use the same... I use the same lead venture capitalist, Silverton Partners here in Austin. And the partner there I've been working with now for over 10 years. And we have a an incredible relationship. And when that's tested is when times don't go well. And that's that happens always along the journey. And I, I will tell you that there were times when my my venture partner was more bullish about the business than I was as I was having my moment. So yeah, the, that relationship really, really does matter. You need to find somebody who is equally supportive in the troughs as they are on the peaks. Yeah. So I think one of the things that is also firmly in the VC camp on, on the benefits is what I like call the ecosystem, right? And and it's it's the fact that the VC is not only they're sitting on the board and you've got all that direction coming and you know, there's a cost to that, but they also have a whole ecosystem around them of operators and introductions to potential customers and that that view from the top and all these things they've seen. On the bootstrap side, it's really lonely, right? Especially I was a sole founder. I didn't, I didn't have you know, anybody sitting in my camp. And I think if there's one story that summarizes this the best, you know, I've been in Austin for 15 years when, when Rob moved here and my company 
company was doing you know, six or seven million at that point, pretty decent sized company here in Austin. And Rob comes in to a VC company and literally like two months later, he's inviting me to all the parties. Like he's inviting me to, even for VCs that weren't his VC, right? I'm getting invited to the ACL, you know, the Austin Ventures. I was like, how the hell are you inviting me to all the parties? I've been here for 15 years. And then this happened so many times and it actually happened two weeks ago. Uh, still, it's unbelievable. It's still happening. Is I would go to some startup event and I'd be sitting there and somebody walk up to me and, and they, and, uh, they're like, gosh, I feel like we've met before. And I would stop and I'd be like, yeah, was I, uh, taller and skinnier? And like, what I was like, oh, I'm Rob Taylor's brother. And they're like, oh, I didn't know Rob had a brother in town. I'm like, I'm the fucking brother in town. But like, I've been here for 15 years. He moved here three months ago, but, but he, he walked in to this whole ecosystem, right? And he, he was, uh, almost a brand and you know he came in and very quickly had an exit and then you know started started his next one and i didn't have that right i i was trying to build that all myself and so my number one thing that i talk about when i work with entrepreneurs is if you're you know whether you're vc or bootstrap is you have to build that ecosystem it's harder if you bootstrap i do it through groups like we're in justin and groups like you know the entrepreneurs organization or, or ypo uh, are fantastic groups to to go out and get peer-to-peer advisory and have people in the boat with you uh, or go go build your own board of advisors. Right? I never had a board uh, except for my wife, but I went out and sought advisors that would really kind of shoot me straight and get out of my own head and, and make sure that you know, I had people that were kind of giving me a little bit of perspective because you know, it's hard, you know, especially 15 years in. Hey, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to take a quick minute to tell you about my online course. As a listener, you probably know my story. In under two years, I had multiplied my net worth to over eight figures and my investments were generating enough passive income for my wife and me to quit our jobs. Since launching the Lifestyle Investor book and podcast, I've had a lot of people reaching out asking how I was able to accomplish this in such a short period of time and how they can start investing just like I do. My methods are unconventional. But I've always wanted to share my strategies and help as many people as possible accomplish financial freedom. And while the podcast is loaded with lots of alternative investment advice from both myself and my guests, it's not intended to be a comprehensive system that walks you through my step-by-step process. That's why I decided to create the Lifestyle Investor course, a roadmap for anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of lifestyle investing. Anyone can use my system, no matter what level they're at in their investing career. So if you want all my strategies for creating passive income and building wealth conveniently packaged up into a simple to follow course, visit justindonald.com forward slash course for all the details. Now let's get back to the show. Chris, that's an incredible point that even if you're not forced to have a board of advisors like you will be if you go the VC route, you really need to take the initiative and really take it upon yourself to build your own board of advisors. And this can be in life also, but specifically it should be for the business because you want people in your camp that have played the game of business and life and investing at a higher level. They've walked through it, they've had the experience, and they can truly give you advice, not based on, hey, I think I would probably do this based on a gut feel. You don't want that. You want, oh yeah, I've been through this. In fact, I did it this way and it was the really bad result. And then I did it this way 
and we had a much better result. So I recommend learning from my mistakes and taking this path. You need that wisdom as an entrepreneur. You need it as an investor. You just need it. I think you need it in life. Even if you're not an investor or an entrepreneur or anything, you just need smart people around you that have the experience that you don't have. Yeah, I think it's the most important thing. And it's hard to do, it's hard to find, but it's worth the investment in both time and you know, equity or money. I gave give my advisors equity. And I, I think it's important for your team too, right? We I had coaches going down through my executive team. Like basically my personal advisor then became an advisor in our team and and really kind of work with us all to be a better team, right? And uh, such well invested money. Yeah. Hundred percent. Nothing else to add. Absolutely. Surrounding yourself with advisors, mentors too, right? Like even folks that have nothing to do with your business who can help you personally and professionally, especially as a CEO entrepreneur, because it's the loneliest job on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. There's no doubt. I mean, the saying of it being lonely at the top of the mountain is is so true. And you just want to find other people that are there at the top of the mountain, whatever their mountain is, whatever size it is so that you can kind of connect. And I do think that peer group matters more than people realize. I think mentorship and coaches matter more than people realize. And I say this all the time. We're living in a day and an age where everyone's a coach. Everyone's a life coach. Everyone, I guess, is certified to give you life advice because they've lived life. I don't know if that is a... you know, I, I want a higher benchmark than like, yeah, I'm alive. I can coach you. I really think you need to hire people that have done exactly what it is that you want to do, or maybe they've done it at a higher scale than you even want to do, but they have the expertise to be able to get you there. But I can't even for a second begin to soften up the importance of my peer group in different stages of my life professionally and the impact that that's had on me, the impact that it's had on my mindset, my thinking, what's possible, what's capable, just hearing the way people think and talk and communicate will shift the way that you do. Because we all basically, we take beliefs from other people, beliefs that our parents instill in us, beliefs that our friends instill in us, the beliefs of the the people that you spend the most time with, whatever they instill in us, that's kind of what we walk around with, often not even proving whether it is an accurate or a true belief or not, right? Uh, We live oftentimes on other people's projections. And so taking the time to get clear on that, or even better yet, or as well, let's hang around people that have a much stronger mindset and much more successful like of a path or a track on everything. Not just entrepreneurship, not just investing, but health and relationships and strong family values and whatever else it might be. I think that that is so important. And by the way, Chris, I'm so excited. You and I are going to get a chance to kind of upgrade our peer group because we're going to Necker Island, Richard Branson's Island, to hang with him for a week. So I am really excited to glean all kinds of wisdom and nuggets from him and add him as, let's call him an advisor. I use air quotes on that. I would love to bring him on the team. But even if I just get him for a week, I'm pretty happy with that. And it's very cliche, but I think it's that you're the average of your five closest people you interact with. I think there's nothing is more true, right? Where when you surround yourself with people who are aspiring to be better or, or, or in a direction you want to go, 
it's just it's so so eye opening. And so I've kind of as I've transitioned from you know entrepreneur to kind of investor at this point, I'm, I haven't really figured out what my 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 next move is yet. Getting involved with with you and your circle and really understanding this whole, kind of whole new world that I knew nothing about. Yeah, it's pretty easy to think that I'm being successful over here. I'll be successful over there. It's pretty obvious once you start interacting with with folks from Tiger Twenty One and, and folks from your circle that uh, yeah, it's a whole, whole different world. There's a lot to learn and a lot of opportunities. So, so I'm excited about that journey. Yeah, it's a different skill set. A lot of a lot of entrepreneurs don't understand this because they have had a lot of success, especially if you get into an ecosystem with a lot of other successful entrepreneurs. It just greatly increases the odds that you will be successful, right? What they're doing, you're going to copy. Success really breeds more success. And so you're just going to have things rub off on you and you're going to see things, do things, think about things in a different light. And so as a successful entrepreneur, I see this all the time because you've experienced so much success that you think in your next chapter, whatever it is, that you're going to have just as much success, that it's going to be bigger and better. But when you transition from an entrepreneur to an investor, it is a whole different skill set. This is not the same by any stretch of the imagination. Now, there could be some truth in the fact that you may have an inside scoop, you have expertise in an industry where you know it like the back of your hand. So you may have some inside baseball to be able to help from an investment standpoint. But overall, the decisions to invest in vetting companies, vetting opportunities, vetting the worst case scenarios and playing them out, it is just a different ball game than running a company. And I really hope as entrepreneurs keep having exits and keep doing great things, that they can pause and get the education they need. They can join a mastermind like the Lifestyle Investor Mastermind or whatever mastermind is out there. I, I don't feel like there are many that teach this stuff, but this is what people need to learn so they don't lose all the money that they've made on these big exits. And I see that, unfortunately, all the time. Yeah, no, I think it's almost a different way of thinking of risk too, right? Entrepreneurs are kind of the ultimate risk takers. And then you 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 get this pile of money and then you have this massive appetite for risk. And the reality is if you're thinking about it the right way, you don't need to take all that risk with that money, right? Certainly a portion of it you might want to, a portion of it back into yourself to go do another one. But there's no reason that you can't have great outcomes with relatively low risk, which is not how I lived my last 15 years, right? So it's, it's just a very, very different mindset as I've kind of made that transition. And I'm curious your experience, Rob, and even some of your thoughts uh, reflecting on what we've talked about, because again, your, your path is a little different. And though it may be a riskier path as an entrepreneur, I do think to a certain degree, because of the expertise and wisdom, uh, there's more of a calculated decision. You've got money that can kind of help protect some of the risky moves where you have you know, kind of a war chest. That doesn't mean it's not risky, but in a worst case scenario, you can pump some more money in and put a Band-Aid on until it's actually you know, fixed. So it's structurally uh, fixed. Yeah, I think there's really two sides of that coin. You're right. When you do raise venture and you have a very strong balance sheet, it does allow you to weather storms. But keep in mind, success for a venture-backed business is not to grow slowly or not at all. You have to have that, that growth imperative, whatever that is, whether it's 50 to 100% a year. And you, know, you can weather short storms, 
but you, it's hard to weather long ones uh, without really destroying the business. And that's, again, kind of an endemic quality of, of venture. You have to keep growing, but you, but you certainly do have some more, some more flexibility to weather short-term storms. So I'm curious, are there any other pros and cons? I mean, I'm sure there are. Any other that would make sense to get into today with regards to bootstrapping versus VC, venture capital? What are the top? I think we've covered the big ones. I mean, I think that optionality is one we touched on. That's probably, you know, kind of the, the other one that guy focus on is just your time frame, the cash flowing versus going big, and then having to grow versus not having to grow. I mean, building off Rob's last comment, I had a couple of bad years, right? I, you know, I frankly, like five years ago, was doubling every year and, and had a couple of good years. It would have been a great time to exit, would have been a great time to raise money. Um, and then things slowed down, right? And and I got, uh, I never had to do layoffs or fire my team or, or do anything that, frankly, if I was VC, I probably would have had to but because of the slowdown. But uh, I had that optionality to kind of, control culture and control things that I wanted to do uh, through those lean times to kind of work. I mean, again, a couple of years to work our way back through it to the point where we started kind of growing again as we, you know, we, we kind of got focused on the right thing. So, so I just think that, that I really valued that optionality um, both on not only on exit, but on how to kind of run the business along the way uh, and how to kind of protect the things I cared about in the company along the way. Yeah. Anything to add, Rob? I think that's right. I mean, optionality, I think, directly relates to my comments before, which is you, as a venture-backed business, you do have some optionality, but but not really, right? Like in, in, in Chris's instance, where he had a couple of bad years and he just stopped investing, you know, back into the business and got conservative and didn't have to do layoffs. I mean, at Convey, we went through some tough times too, and when I say tough times, our growth rate went from 100% to, you know, whatever, 50%. Mm. So we're still growing. And we did over the last seven years, we had to do, unfortunately, two separate reductions in force to make sure that we could preserve that balance sheet and continue to aggressively invest in the areas that, you know, we, we hoped would be successful. So it, it really is a different, a different lens. Yeah, that's, that's great feedback. And another question I have for you, this is an interesting one because I meet entrepreneurs all the time that have had a massive exit. I would say many of the people in my ecosystem are either entrepreneurs on the verge of a massive exit or entrepreneurs that have recently or sometime in the past had a pretty good size exit and in some cases, very large. But the one commonality that I find is that having the big exit isn't the emotional experience that everyone thinks it's going to be that it's it's not like you just arrive it's kind of like oh okay this is cool what's next and so i'm wondering how long each of you experienced like this joy of accomplishing having this big payout versus like okay i'm kind of bored uh what what's next so what's that like for each of you yeah, uh, since I exited a little earlier, I'll start and Rob can come on. So I, I think it probably articulated both. I, I was pretty, it's an exhausting process, right? Like, and I sold my, my company during COVID. So the year leading up to it was tough, just kind of managing through all that. And then the, the process itself was, was really, really difficult. So I was pretty, pretty toasty burnt by the time it got done. So everyone always asked me, like, what's next? You're going to do another one? I was like, hell no. Like, I am so done. I'm not doing another one. And then, uh, 
I, you know, I just hit my year anniversary yesterday and, and people are like, so you're going to do nothing. And I'm like, you know, um, you know, maybe. And so I'm pretty sure if you ask me six months from now, I'll probably be like, hell yeah. So, so it, it is both a journey on the, Hey, that was a great outcome. And there's that kind of emotional release, but I would say most of it was exhaustion. It was kind of hitting the finish line and Rob used to run Ironman. I can only imagine it's like this, right? And there's, there's a, a joy and elation that comes out of that, but you also just want to sit in a chair and you know, have a glass of orange juice <laughs> or, or, or wine in this case and relax. So yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think it's been a very pensive year about what's next and what I want the next chapter to look like, you know, and both of us have true FU money at this point. We can do whatever we want. So for me, it's going to be a combination of giving back, but, but also helping other people build or, you know, maybe, maybe in a, a direct role, maybe in an advisory role, but, but we'll see. Never say never. It's changing every day as I, as I get a little bit farther from the exit. Yeah, that's cool because that's the truth where it changes. It's like if you talk to women, sometimes they've had kids, if they don't have their minds made up often in that moment, they're like, no way, I just had a kid. I'm not having any more kids. And then, you know, in six months, it's like, well, maybe. and then, you know, all of a sudden they're pregnant, ready for their next child. And this has happened with a lot of our friends that are like, no way, I'm not having any more kids. And now some of them are at four, five, six. And so, yeah, time changes. You get out of the heat of the moment and you're able to reevaluate, make some decisions. And you said something really important. You don't have to run a business to contribute and get some of, you know, use your gifts and, and get some of the thrill of the business because you can advise, you can coach. There's so many different things that can be done. So I think that that's a, a, a really good point, Chris. Rob, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I agree with a lot of what Chris said. I mean, you know, being an entrepreneur, people self-select into entrepreneurship. The personalities that we have, high ambition, high drive, want to make an impact every single day, a high risk tolerance. These characteristics don't go away just because you sell your company. But Chris is right. It can be an exhausting journey. And you know, the other thing I, I coach entrepreneurs on, and, and even my leadership team, the other thing about entrepreneurship, it is a roller coaster of highs and lows. The highest of the highs down to the lowest of the lows over the course of that journey. And you have to find joy in the journey. This is what I, you can't be obsessed with the destination. You have to find joy in that journey and just remind yourself of all the learning you're going through, of the mission that you're on and the purpose of your company. That requires constant reminding yourself because it is hard. And so it is an, it can be an exhausting process. And similar to Chris, like, you know, Convey was a little over a seven year journey. It was a very difficult company to build. We were pioneering really a new category in uh, logistics and supply chain technology. And so it was very, it was very difficult and, and exhausting. And ultimately, we got a great exit at the end, partially because we did a great job and partially because we were lucky. And by the way, luck is required every time. In whatever dose you get it, it's always required. So don't let your ego get in the way of thinking that it was 100% you. But I'm in a, a transition right now where I'm part of the company that acquired us. I'm still sort of running our business. I'm deeply committed to making sure that this acquisition is successful, that my team lands in great roles within the business. And you know, we took equity, we took some equity into the new business. And so, you know, I'm financially incentivized to make sure this goes well as well. And so I'm I'm committed for some period of time here. And beyond that, you know, I don't know. I, I'm not sure I'm gonna start from scratch again, but 
but certainly doing some board work, advising, getting you know re-energized while also taking a bit of a break is sort of my strategy right now. Oh, I love it. Well, I, I can tell you just from my experience that it's very refreshing to go from running a business, being in charge of everything to, hey, I've got a board seat and I advise or I've done some consulting. That to me is just so much easier. It's better. It's more fun. If you really like it a lot, you can bring on multiple advisory agreements with different companies at the same time to kind of supplement whatever amount of hours it is or, or exposure that you want. So I, I love that you guys both have that as a, an opportunity, a possibility. And I also love that you guys are no strangers to having some great wine. The last time we hung out, we got into just some incredible wine and just shared some fun stories. And I know there's plenty more of that coming up in the chapters ahead for you two, but also for the three of us, which will be fun. Question for you in wrapping things up here. Are there any last words of advice or wisdom that you would offer those who are watching or listening to our interview? I think we, gosh, we covered a lot of ground today and talked about a lot. I mean, reflecting back on some of the things we've discussed, I mean, this idea, especially if you're a first time entrepreneur really trying to figure out your path forward, assuming you have an idea and it's about how to fund it. Surround yourself with really strong mentorship and people who have who have been there before you in all these regards. I think that's probably some of the most important things we talked about today. Don't feel like you have to do this on your own. There's lots of accomplished folks out there who, by the way, all did this too. They all surrounded themselves with really strong mentors. And now we are ready and, and have been giving back, right? And so people are out there take some initiative, find out who they are and, and get connected. Yeah, no, it's my number one thing as well. And, and I think you'd be surprised. Each ecosystem and community is different. I think especially in Austin, it's a very you know, rising waters, lift all boats kind of city. There's great resources like the Capital Factory or Techstars, which we're both mentors for here. But ask, right? You'd be shocked about how one conversation about, do you know anybody who knows about this? Or oh, I'm having trouble mentally getting over this issue. I'm having a really hard time. Very quickly in, you know, in the, the seven degrees of Kevin Bacon way, you'll get to the right people. And you know, it's pretty much even as I'm thinking about what's next and, and, and or how I can help, mainly doing that by just reaching out to my network and having conversations and, and starting to really reconnect with folks and having these kind of deep conversations about what's really going on in my head and being really open and transparent in those conversations. Yeah, that's great. And I'm sure there's also a lot of travel and experiences in your future as well. I know, you know, between you and I, Chris, and maybe we'll talk Rob into this as well. You know, we've got our golden visa program going for Portugal, which is nice and getting a chance to be able to spend extended time there as well as the rest of the EU is just going to be a lot of fun in the future. And it's always fun with more people. So Rob, we'd love to have you join us. I'm working on them. Glasses of port on the beach and sounds like a, an amazing way to spend a, a couple summers. So. Yeah, that's so cool. Well, gentlemen, thanks so much for joining. This has been a blast. I just love our time. I love our conversations. And uh, I look forward to many more here in the future. For anyone who wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach out? 
Yeah, I, I manage my network through LinkedIn. I'm Square Root CEO at LinkedIn and look me up, connect with me. Yeah, mention the podcast. I keep a pretty tight network, but mention this podcast and I uh, would love to continue the conversation. Yeah, same for me. LinkedIn is the best. Robert J. Taylor on LinkedIn. And yeah, look forward to connecting. Very cool. Well, I'd love to end this episode the way I end every episode, which is this. What is the one step you can take today to move towards financial freedom in a life by design that you truly desire on your terms, not by default, but by precision and intention and really just creating it by whatever is best and whatever you see most fitting for you. Thanks, and we'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review over on iTunes. Not only do I read every single one, but it also helps me understand what content matters the most to our audience. And if you can think of one or two people who could benefit from this episode, would you share it with them right now? Who knows? Maybe they'll buy you something nice when they make their first million. If you would like access to today's show notes, including links to all the resources mentioned, visit www.justindonald.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next week for another episode of The Lifestyle Investor.